All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Hey, 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 all right. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. And boy, have I got a great episode for you this week. I am really excited to have in the inshore offshore digital studio, Rick Constantine, who is vice president of marketing and general manager at Acme United, and who oversees that great line of knives and tools designed for anglers, Cuda Brands. And I'll tell you right now that Rick is one of those guys that I could spend all day just talking with. He's smart, insightful, and genuinely a great guy. So I am excited to have him join us on the Rodcast. And after Rick and I talk things out, let's take a bourbon break and give some thoughts to Death's Door White Whiskey. And then I'm going to count down my top 10 eel imitators. Hey, but before we get to all that great content, I want to share a little knowledge today. You know, I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of great people inside the recreational fishing industry and inside the recreational publishing industry. And so I get to learn a lot from so many wonderful people. Of course, over the last year, the recreational fishing industry has spent a lot of time thinking about the ways in which the pandemic impacted the industry. And there's a lot of really interesting information out there about that, which ultimately has an effect on all of our fishing. For example, did you know that in 2020, the numbers of fishing licenses sold in the U.S. increased by 13%? For women anglers, though, that number of new licenses is increased by 23%. And for men, it only increased by 10%. Now, that's pretty interesting if you ask me, but I'd be willing to bet that a lot of that increase among women comes from mothers needing outdoor activities to participate in with their kids when everything was closed down during the pandemic. But what makes that even more interesting is that in 2021, when we started coming back out of our lockdowns, the overall license purchase in the U.S. decreased by 6%, and it decreased by 11% among women. I should note, though, that even with that decrease, the overall 2021 license sales was an increase of 6% over the 2019 numbers of, of licenses. So that's just some food for thought for today, and I'm going to leave the analytical work and the interpretations as to what that might mean for us as anglers really up to you, though I do have a few theories of my own. But all of that aside, we have got another great Rodcast for you today, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, we have got a conversation headed your way that is going to be so good on this episode because we have got Captain Rick Constantine of Cuda Brand Tools in the inshore offshore digital studio today. Now, Captain Constantine has spent his life fishing and hunting, and about 40 years ago, when he was working as a commercial fisherman and as a charter captain, he began to get frustrated with the quality of tools available to professional anglers. So when he was working as a vice president at Acme United Company, which, by the way, I just learned is a company that manufactures fishing equipment, not giant rockets, giant rubber bands, bird seed, explosive (laughs) tennis balls, detonators, dehydrated boulders, rocket-powered roller skates, 
and other roadrunner hunting tools, but an actual fishing company. But when he was working for Acme, the fishing company, not the other one, he decided to launch his own brand of fishing tools and he developed CUDA brand tools. And CUDA tools have become some of the most sought after tools and knives for anglers out there. Now, I've been a fan of Rick's and of CUDA brand tools for a while. And knowing that he is one of the most knowledgeable, if not the most obsessed shark anglers out there also, and that his tools are well worth talking about, I figured it was time to get him on the Rodcast. So if he's not already bored with my Acme jokes, which I'm sure he hears all the time, I have to say that I am thrilled to have Rick Constantine of Cooter Brands on the Rodcast. Rick, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So on most of our episodes, we usually start off with some background about our guests, some origin story stuff. And your origin story is really kind of interesting since you not only grew up hunting and fishing, but you've also worked as both a charter captain and as a commercial fisherman. Could you tell us a little bit about that background and about how your childhood on the water evolved into the passion you have for fishing? Yeah, it's it started off as not really having a choice. Uh, when I was younger, um, my dad was a commercial fisherman and captain, and of course, all of his friends were. So I was the uh, sort of uh, what they used to call the bilge boy. We asked to be down in the bilge you know, dressing tuna, packing them with ice, putting the rice paper on. And that was my job. Um, a lot of kids worked for, you know, trying to get a newspaper route or, or maybe shovel driveways in the winter. But I was, I was in the village of boats dressing fish one way or the other. And I rarely got to reel the fish in because that's what the cool kids got to do. And I was the the workhorse. And so I grew up doing that. Um, and, you know, I, I say that just because I've seen some of the most amazing things happen in the ocean from, you know, whales jumping, you know, three feet from the boat to, you know, having an epic night of 30 yellowfin uh, on the boat, um, being a part of a world's record catch. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't me, but I was a part of it. So I've seen and experienced so many things on the water, and I'm grateful for that start. Um, and, uh, you know, how that transitioned to, you know, where we are today is that I... I, I was involved in, in so many aspects of the non-fun part of fishing of, like I said, dressing fish, cleaning fish, um, preparing fish for sale, that you needed tools of all different types, um, whether it's gaffs to bring them in through the, through the door up over the bow or um, with the gunnels or uh, simply, like I said, cleaning um, and dressing and getting the fish ready for sale. And so I, um, through my experience, much like a lot of other anglers had uh, the ability to just you know, try every tool that was there from ones that were been on the boat uh, from God knows where and sharpened down to a nub to, um, you know, brass darts that we had to sharpen. So they penetrated and angled the fish perfectly. So um, through all that experience, I, I uh, used it and in my mind kept formulating what the perfect tools look like and what they smelled like. And uh, eventually I landed at Acme United almost 17 and a half years ago. And, um, you know, uh, and, and I kept pushing Acme saying that with leaders and cutting that we should really come out um, with, a, with a fishing tool line. And, um, you know, that kind of spurred that initial thought spurred of where we are today. So. Excellent. Now, I want to get to the Cuda brand tools in a minute. But before we do, I really want to dig into your fishing knowledge because you really are one of the few people I know who really focus on shark fishing. So let's talk sharks for a little bit. And I want to get you talking about blue sharks and thresher sharks and North Atlantic shortfin makos. But let's start with the makos, because a couple of months ago when I saw you last, 
the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas had recommended to NOAA to ban mako harvest. Yep. And NOAA put into place a two-year retention ban. Now, NOAA did use a lot of language for provisions to improve data about the mako fishery. But before we talk about mako fishing, tell me about your reaction to this ban. It was mixed. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people know me from shark fishing because I've won a lot of tournaments. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that um, you know, I am addicted to all fishing and, and my passion, believe it or not, is Wahoo. Um, I'm less successful at Wahoo. I haven't won any Wahoo tournaments, um, but I've done I've been pretty successful at shark tournaments. And so people really attach me to that. And specifically, if you've been shark fishing um, of any kind, I think there's two passionate sharks, what I call passionate fishing. And it's those that give a marlin or any other airborne fish a run for their money. And it's the mako and thresher. People don't know as much about the thresher, but they do some incredible aerial flight patterns as well. But the mako is something that's got the evil eye when it comes to the boat. There's nothing more that creates whitewater passion than, than the mako. And of course, um, last but not least, they leap uh, in clear water more than any fish I've ever seen in my life. And so um, there is an addiction there and a passion. And the fight and the speed of the Mako, I think, is un, unmatched, maybe by the thresher only, um, which I feel blue marlin, black marlin is the hardest fighting fish there is when you get them green. So uh, bringing it back to the Mako and your question about that, that, that new law, I was mixed in the sense that there are times when I'd be sitting on my boat doing some sort of maintenance and someone would walk by with an igloo cooler and a 50-pound Mako tail sticking out of it. It would make me sick to my stomach knowing how much I love them. And how much, you know, I wanted to have my daughter see what a Mako was all about. Um, and so I think because they are so ferocious, they'll 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 bite just about anything. Um, getting into the boat is, is talent. But, uh, you know, I, I was very sad to see that people were just just whacking them like crazy. And so for that aspect of it, I was pleased that, that they were, you know, uh, giving them a break. And, and I think it's going to be much longer than two years knowing how decimated the, the Makos are. Um, on the flip side, uh, I was brokenhearted because, you know, you, you catch a tuna and they all pinwheel and there's, they don't act a whole lot differently from one tuna to the other. Makos are just, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, they can come at the boat at lightning speed is one of the fastest fish in the ocean. They can jump up in the air or they can strip the reel. Um, and, and it's always something different. It's not the same day at the desk job every day when you catch a Mako. Um, and so I was mixed that, you know, you still can fish for them, but you can't harvest them. And I also love to eat them. So overall, I'm pleased. Uh, it's, it's, you know, something that, that my dad was my hero, um, uh, you know, that we did together and, you know, we just can't harvest them anymore. Right. So um, I'm okay with the change and I think it's needed. That's excellent. And I appreciate that explanation. You also sort of anticipated what I wanted to get at with Makos, and that was what is it that grabs Makos about so much of your attention? Yeah. So given that you've already kind of touched on that, give me some pro strategy. I want to go Mako fishing. What do I need to do? I mean, I, and I've certainly been in lots of waters where Makos are around and they're jumping, but I've never targeted them. So tell me, what am I doing to catch a Mako? Uh, you're asking me to give them secrets. Well, I won't tell you where we go, uh, but considering that you're in Florida, and again, um, I've never fished for Makos uh, uh, in, in the South, but in the East Coast, um, I tell everybody, and, and whenever I'm you know, teaching a seminar or something in a fishing show, it's really simple for me. It's all about live bait. 
Um, Mako love the hunt. They love the chase. They have the speed. Um, and so I will bring my, my number one bait is a live bluefish. And I uh, brindle it uh, with a hook uh, through the eyelet. Um, and then also I will uh, um, uh, either surgically staple or rubber band a trailer hook on the tail. Um, in most cases, what we've seen um, is that Makos will either chase the fish and try and bite the tail and you'll end up with your hook in the head floating. Um, um, but in very rare cases, they will go head first. And so you have to push and position the hook backwards. Um, so hook placement, um, as well as how you bait the, the live baits. Short of a bluefish, um, we'll do stick baits, much like they do for giants, um, and um, consist of mackerel, uh, butterfish, um, and then, uh, you know, other different, uh, what we call smorgasbords on my boat, where we'll fillet a bluefish and a mackerel or some other type of fish. And so they'll have two different uh, fillets uh, with different patterns on the outside. Um, and then we do other things uh, uh, specifically in tournaments where um, I've created a device that has, it's almost like a basket and it goes in line and we'll put chunks of chum in there. And uh, the chum line is, the chum uh, attachment is in the line. So it, it gives out that chum pattern directly onto the baits, giving it that extra flavor and, and trail pattern that, that we need. So um, that's kind of how we've been successful in tournaments and, and, and done a good job in getting those big makos. So there's a lot of uh, different um, options. We've also created um, this barrel that is a flow system. So we'll get uh, either fresh butterfish or fresh mackerel um, it must be fresh because once the blood's coagulated, it doesn't spread out as well um, on either fish. So we'll put it in there and I have a masher. So we mash it up on the bottom. It circles around the 50 gallon drum and we'll spit out the top. Um, and so that's a really fresh blood trail. It only, again, it only really works in my experience with fresh bait, not frozen. And um, so we only bring that out really for the tournaments because it's a lot of work and a lot of expense. But those are some of the uh, the the tricks and, and techniques that we've used to be successful. And, and at the end of the day, um, making sure that your leader is right, obviously uh, circle hooks um, and have enough uh, backing on the line, because like I said, in the beginning, Makos sometimes are quick to come to the boat and you're shocked. My biggest Mako 454, we had, you know, tied to the boat in less than an hour and a half. Um, but I've had smaller 200 pounders that can give you a much harder fight. So one thing's for sure, you got to have enough backing on, on, on the, on the rod and the reel. And, um, obviously I change my line, especially with tournaments. I change it every tournament, one Nick with the fight of a Mako and the pressure it snaps and you're done. Um, and you know, there's a lot of money to be had there. Yeah. I, I just did a piece on changing lines for tournaments. Uh, so yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I assume with the bluefish that we're not talking Taylor blues, we're talking blues. They're like three to five pounds, somewhere in that range. Yeah, our bluefish are a little bigger than that, Harry, but yes, yeah. yes, uh, straight bluefish. Excellent. So, you know, I hear how jazzed you get about mako fishing, um, yeah. and I, I'm, you know, I think it's fantastic, too. And I've seen plenty of makos jumping in the Sea of Cortez, off Hawaii, a lot of the other places that I fish. And these are, like you said, these are aerialist fish. So what's the strategy for when a mako goes skyward? Well, the first thing that people do when they see a fish, they, they jam the line back, right? They look like they're trying to reset the hook. And what that does is you bring it up as you give slack and the mako goes up in the air and when they're slack, you know, they're shaking and hoping that hook's going to come dislodged. Um, so the first thing that we 
um, try to do is to keep the line tight, point your tip directly at the fish when it's up in the air. And if that rod is bent, hold it, keep it bent until he goes back into the water. If it's slack, reel it slowly to keep that tight, but not rip the hook out of his mouth because he's trying to wiggle and hope that that hook uh, drops out. There's a famous picture I have in my stairway where we were in a tournament and um, the it shows the progression of the fish up in the air and aerial. And uh, what had happened is we had a somewhat new team member. It's probably one of the largest Makos we've ever had on. And it was in the um, Star Island tournament, which is the biggest one. It was, you know, a 500 plus thousand dollar uh, a purse for first prize. And we had the biggest Mako I've ever had on my life go up in the air. And as it was up in the air, it had jumped multiple times. The third time I could see the line because he had swam and the line was in his mouth, the hook and the line. Two seconds later, he bit down and bye-bye shark. And so um, it shows that when the shark's up in the air, they come back down. They're really good at finding that line and will try and bite it. Um, and uh, so keeping it tight, putting the tip towards the fish and making sure you follow him without jerking it and pulling, helping him get that hook out of his mouth. Okay, I'm going to write that advice down because that's that's good to know. <laughs> All right, so let's talk threshers for a minute. Yep. There's this great episode of Bob Izumi's Real Fishing Show from 2015 oh, that features you and your dad, along with Bob Izumi and some others, yeah. fishing the Montauk Shark Tournament. And you yeah. put a 314-pound thresher on that boat that day. That was the third heaviest fish of that tournament. Yeah. Tell me about targeting threshers. What are the strategies and what do we need to know? And I'm also curious about safety when fishing for threshers, which is something you kept conveying to Bob Izumi through that show because... With a thresher, you've got both ends are dangerous. Yeah. So um, I, I love Bob to death. And God, I, I, that's going back in the history books. I forget even what that year is, probably seven, eight years ago now. 2015. Um, what? What's that? 2015. Okay. Okay. So a year after we launched CUDA. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, there, you're right. There's, there's, I'm less concerned. I mean, it's strange to say it's about a shark with the teeth of the thresher, more so that tail. Um, uh, so, when you get a thresher, the fight is usually very different. The end game may be closer, um, but threshers go straight down and it's as if you caught a Volkswagen bus and they won't budge. They just sit there and really go slowly. And you guys have probably all seen, the viewers have seen images of threshers either swimming and they use that tail just to guide them or to use it to whack bait fish and just scoop them up. So they're incredibly graceful and powerful fish. Um, and again, that fight is just, it's one of the worst ever. It's like a Volkswagen bus of dead weight. Um, what do they call them? In Florida, they have the sea donkeys, right? Which are which are much smaller, but they do that sort of same thing for the size of the fish. They just give you a hard time. But the end game is much like a, a Mako because when they do get, you know, coming up, uh, unlike a Mako who jumps and flips, threshers come up and, and, and jump uh, horizontally. And they just come out in a picture perfect tail stretched out jaw stretched out um and it's i mean there's pictures out there that are just breathtaking how beautiful they are when they launch um in that episode with bob azumi and again i love bob but the funny thing is is that you know we put him on the fish and about three seconds later rick you know and i was on there for the next i forget what it was um i know that we put a little time clock up which they now use on wicked tuna a lot but we sort of said how long it was and and uh it was a tough fish um, really tough fish. And at the end, it jumped uh, unbelievable, clear right out off the bow of the uh, boat um, in front of us. And it was a great shot. 
what people don't know. And we ended up cutting it out of, of the show because Bob was concerned with what people thought of the safety is that um, we were flying gaff the fish um, because obviously harpoons aren't legal in shark tournaments. And so I, uh, the, the fish was coming up and we saw that the line was frayed and I knew we were going to lose him if I didn't do something dramatic. So I went leaping across with the flying gaff across the cockpit onto the stern or the, the stern almost where the fishing door is. And I threw the flying gaff almost like a harpoon and uh, it went over the back and I pulled it in and we got the fish. And uh, it's interesting because you can see um, in the clip where my dad's grabbing um, the back of my pants because I went too far and I was not losing this fish after all those hours and probably wasn't the best. Uh, the passion got the, head, the most of me there. So anyway, the, the, the differences with that thresher is that they fight harder in down and low. Um, they can jump like they, like the Makos do at the end. Um, and uh, that tail is dangerous. I've had multiple threshers come very close um, to either breaking my collarbone or, you know, uh, or hit me upside the head. It's like, it's like moving lead. You can't imagine how heavy and how strong it is. But again, um, their uh, their their tail is just, you don't know when it's going to flap and you got to be careful and watch out for it. And as you may or may not know, um, I have never been hurt by a thresher, but I was degloved by a mako shark um, that took um, uh, my bottom two fingers and part of my hand, uh, all the skin right off and had to go to Montauk in a long surgery and lots of crazy physical therapy thereafter. And now my bottom two fingers are there, but they don't work very well. But, you know, the, the thresher is, is a concern, but the Mako is real that the, it can come up with those teeth and bend in half. Like you can't imagine. And one got me. So you must be careful with them. Wow. I did not know that, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the thresher, you know, has got that reputation with the tail, right? It's that great scene in jaws when Robert Shaw, you know, when they're pointing to the scars and he says, thresher's tail, right? Yeah. 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 For sure. So I want to add, you mentioned something about that episode and about that fish, about Bob passing you the rod. And one of the things I noticed in that uh, in that show is here you are in a tournament, and you guys pass off the rods at different points, like when you went to the gaff or um, when somebody else grabbed the leader. In a lot of other tournaments and a lot of other rule-based fishing like IGFA records, passing the rod isn't part of the game. Talk about why that's done uh, like that in tournaments like the Montauk tournament. Well, it's, it's not ever done. Um, and unlike, you know, uh, tuna tournaments or open tournaments uh, or mixed tournaments for, you know, tuna or swordfish or whatever the case may be, um, we don't really pay attention or we didn't in the past of a lot of IGFA rules. It's not IGFA sanctioned. Um, but I would say that's probably the first time or the only time I can remember where we have, not because of any rules, but because of a thing of a passion. Um, the only reason why... Uh, the rod was passed off is that we had a pretty good sized thresher. It's not the biggest one we ever caught of 314 pounds, but it's the first time that these guys have ever seen a, an animal like that. And um, it was just more than a beginner could handle. And so I had to jump in. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't really, um, it's not sanctioned by AGFA. So we don't have those rules. Um, it's really more so can't use J hooks, can't use harpoons. And none of us do that. And as far as, you know, passing off the rods, it's, it's not done just because we're tough fishermen and, and we're passionate about when we get it, we want to bring it in ourselves. Um, but that was just a different day. And it was really, you know, filming of the TV show. And so, yeah, that was uh, a different situation that we had to adapt to. So 
if I'm not mistaken, speaking of tournaments and rules, not only do you fish tournaments, but you also founded a tournament way, way back when. Could you talk about competition as a motivating factor in fishing and why you like tournaments? Um, I, I think fishing tournaments are, un, are, are unlike any sporting event, whether you're playing football, baseball. For those people who like competition, and it's not for everybody, um, I, I think fishing is a whole nother level of competition. Um, when you step on a field and you're a baseball player or a football player, um, of course you're on a team sport, but when you catch the ball, if you run the ball, um, or if something's, you know, a hot shot on third base is coming to you, it's your ability to make that challenge and, and meet it and be successful getting the ball, throwing the first base, catching it, score a touchdown. With fishing, um, that competition is not only it's not only a luck portion, right? Because you can land in a part of the ocean where there isn't anything. It's just the luck of the draw. Um, or you can use special baits, look at thermoclines and other things and sort of get things going in your way. Uh, uh, but the competition with fishing is that you have no idea if you're in a shark tournament, whether or not you get a big tuna under the boat or um, whatever the case is, even a shark, like a, um, a uh, you know, shark that's not within the tournament, like a gray shark or, or, or a brown shark that's not legal. You just don't know what's going to happen. And because of the amount of money that's involved in tournaments, both the Calcuttas and the entrance fees, the fuel, the electricity, the dockage, the food, the whole thing. Um, it's a it's a big expense. And so people in their minds don't look there, go there to make money. But in reality, you need to recoup some of it. And when you do win, it helps you pay for both that one and future tournaments. So the competition in fishing, um, whether you're, you know, you're trying to get the best new rod and reel or the best new curve bunt rod, or you're looking at the best floral carbon or the baits and the freshest baits on your process and location. There's so many things that go into a fishing tournament. And oh, by the way, just like when you're a quarterback and you drop back to throw the ball, you gotta hope you have a good receiver. When you're in a tournament boat, whether you're Marlin, Tuna, whatever the case may be, you need to make sure that you got a good lineman, you got a good rodman, and you got a good end game, meaning gaff, harpoon, whatever it is. And so um, there's a lot of things that go in a tournament. It's partial individual, and it ends up being a, a, a team game and a team win. I love that answer. And you guys, as Cuda, you guys sponsor tournaments too, if I'm not mistaken, right? You you sponsor particular tournaments? We sponsored a ton of them in the past since COVID, um, and uh, very few since then, and not because we don't want to. Um, it just doesn't seem that there's as many going on. Um, the tournament that I wa last won in 2019 – um in montauk new york it's it's not happening anymore they just canceled it because of it and they haven't brought it back so um we haven't sponsored uh much since then uh but uh you know hopefully in the future when things really get back to um to tournaments get back to where they were and fuel prices so people can afford to go out in tournaments um then we'll start to look that way again so what's your favorite tournament to fish uh to be honest with you, I've only done it once. Um, it was put on by J&B, uh, which is the the white open, and they do swordfish, tuna, mahi, um, and uh, it is just an amazing competition where big, big boats come in, and sometimes a small guy wins, which is a great story. Um, but you can fish at that time. You can fish any different days. like So it goes on a week, and you can pick your days. You can go overnight, and so it gives you a lot of um, – uh, flexibility on how you best attack 
um, that tournament. Um, so I would say that's probably um, one of my favorites. Also, I have to go back to Star Island. We fished that tournament for, I don't know, close to 27, 28 years wow. um, and uh, did really well in those tournaments and those series. So I would say it's between those two, the the flexibility of the J&B Block Island tournament. And then also just because I grew up on the Star Island uh, tournaments and it's also the biggest purse um, in the Northeast. So there's that excitement of winning a lot of money. That sounds like fun. Uh, all right, let's put the sharks and the tournaments aside for a second. I want to ask you about two other species, particularly given where you are up there in prime tuna waters. Talk to me about tuna and tuna fishing. Yeah, so um, I I grew up tuna fishing, uh, of course, with my dad, but uh, with what I would argue with anybody, one of the greatest captains to ever roam the ocean, Captain Dick Meek, he, is, he had a commercial boat um, called the Sea Nymph. And he fished ever giants of the Cape and Gloucester um, and through all of our canyons uh, here in, in the Northeast. And he was amazing. I remember being on his boat when I was younger and everybody would be on the radio screaming that there's no fish and our, our hull would be full. So he was amazing. And I learned my secrets uh, from him. And it's all about the details. I talked a little bit about Mako fishing. And of course, uh, Makos are extremely smart, but they're not necessarily um, as astute, I think, visually as a tuna. Tuna can see everything, hence the fluorocarbons and the purity of the fluorocarbons. Um, and that's important to me. I mean, we go down to coloring our lines, coloring the hooks um, and so forth. But uh, for me, it was all about the baits and the way you made the baits, because I think when a tuna comes up and they look at that bait, if anything's off, they'll sniff it out and, and not bite. And I remember you know, when lights and the transoms became in vogue, we had them installed and you can see the tuna running by and your baits, you know, your top bait, your 25 foot, you can see it and they go right past it. You know, they'll come up and you're like, why didn't it hit? And you bring it up and, you know, either, you know, dogfish will bite little holes in it or something, any imperfections. And I've, I've proven that they don't hit it. And so he taught me, you know, how do we, I'm like on a butterfish is my number one bait for tuna, how we hide the hook inside and let them clamp down and pull the hook out of the fish, how we trim uh, all the fins so it doesn't spin. Um, it's really about bait preparation for me um, and how we've, we've hooked up. And then when you're dragging, um, the, it's all about the spread and knowing uh, the thermocline and where those bait bars are and so forth in your area. So um, first and foremost, if you're if you're under the chunk, it's a bait preparation. And if you're dragging, it's definitely the formation, um, the colors and size of baits, um, and knowing where that those those temp breaks are. Okay, I'm writing that down too. So, <laughs> so that was going to be the last species I was going to ask you about before we moved on to to tools. But you brought it up earlier, so I got to hear about wahoo and how you got a passion for wahoo because I'm guessing that's not a daily driver fish for you up there. No, which is why I think I, I love it so much. And so the first time uh, that I ever got a walk, I mean, I've, I've been um, uh, in Florida and, and got, you know, one or two when I was younger in the Keys. And I just love the speed and how you catch them fast. You're trolling fast and you also, you know, watch them to strip line. And that's the passion thing when you hear that rod singing, right? Any fisherman loves to hear that. In fact, if someone calls me, that's my ringer, um, a Wahoo strip um, on my ringer. So, um, but twice, uh, here in the Northeast in the block Canyon, um, we were trolling in not even high speed, um, and back to back weekends, I hooked up on Wahoo. And the first time that it came to the boat, I, 
I just was shocked, right? Because you, no one gets Wahoo here, and it's becoming more and more. I shouldn't say more and more, but it's becoming more common um, given the water temperature changes. But at first time when I brought the gaff, and I was like, "My God, <laughs> that's a Wahoo!" And so we brought on, and it was kind of like it hit the cockpit floor, and we're all silent because we weren't high speed, and I didn't have cowbells or anything else on there. It was a regular green machine I caught it on. Um, and so after that, I started going crazy and putting out Wahoo lines and even trying to troll fast. And I, it, it didn't work. It just was one of those things. But back-to-back weekends, two green machines, they trashed the green machines. It was on a green machine spreader board, to be exact. And we got both of them on that and then never really again. So um, I love eating them. I think they're one of the best table fish in the ocean. Um, and so I love just the excitement and where the Mako jumps the Wahoo strips, right? So um, they're just both great to eat, both exciting fish, and, and you need a lot of speed to try and bring them down and bring them in. Oh, that's great. You know, I'm intrigued by the fact that you got those up there because, you know, we've been here, you talk about the water warming, you know, we get reports now of tuna far as far up as the Oregon coast on the West coast. You know, um, I've written about the resident populations of snook moving farther and farther North on both coasts of Florida, where, you know, there used to be these imaginary lines of you didn't get snook north of here. And now netters are bringing in 1,500, 2,000 snook well, well above that imaginary line. And we're seeing so much change in the water. Um, you know, we so got that, a cobia. We got a cobia in 2019. Wow. Yeah. That far. Wow. Yep. Yep. We got a cobia. It was a small one, but couldn't believe it as well. It was swimming with a bunch of sweet seahorses. We put a bait down and got them. Wow. Well, you might be uh, running tropical charters up there pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't happen often, but it's really nice to see a, a shock here and there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I got to say, I could sit here all day and talk about all kinds of offshore fishing with you, but I want to make sure we get to the Cuda brand too. And the press out there about Cuda says you started the company, like we said, because throughout your experience as a commercial fisherman, as a charter guide, charter guide you were often disappointed by the quality of tools available to you. So you wanted to make a better, more reliable, better, more reliable tools. Tell me a bit about the CUDA brand origin and what sets CUDA tools apart and what's the CUDA philosophy and how you're different from a bunch of the other tools out there. Um, well, it's, it's an interesting story. I mean, obviously like most anglers and fishermen, um, you start at a young age, someone introduces you to it, whether it's a father or a friend and uncle and, and you either get addicted or you don't. There's very few people say, eh, fishing's okay. It's either I love it or it's not my thing. Um, and for me, I think it's my only addiction in the world that in the Miami Dolphins uh, is fishing. Oh, man. Um, oh, yeah, I know. We, we don't agree on, on football. I know. I know. But uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, How does Jimmy take that now? <laughs> What do you mean? He's, he, he's he, a dolphin. Yeah, he's a cowboy. Come on. Yeah, you see, he, well, he, he, he could have turned down, turn around the, the fins. He he did an incredible turnaround the few years he was there. But I think we got a good coach. We're on the right track now, so we'll see. But, um, yeah, so going up around tools, as I said, and, and having to use everything from harpoons and, and flying gaffs and gaffs to, of course, knives and pliers, I just I felt like, uh, you know, they were seasonal. Like most of the knives would break. Uh, most people didn't re weren't really featuring full tangs. They had plastic handles and they were built for fishermen to have to replace. Also, the mentality was, you know, we drop them overboard and, and I got to buy a new one anyway. So I wanted to flip the script a little bit um, and, and 
and just make sure that we were doing what I felt fishermen wanted. And it was edge retention, meaning there's nothing worse than a dull knife when you're cutting bait or making bait or dressing a fish. Um, getting a rusty blade is just the worst thing because you don't want that on your flays and so forth. Um, and a good grip, right? I mean, whether you're wearing gloves or if you're a barehanded, you want that knife to feel secure in your hand. And so um, as I started out, you know, formulating before I, I brought my idea to the management at Acme United, I said, what exactly would I want? And I would want an edge that held up. I would not want it to rust. And I would want to see a, a really good handle, but allowed me to know that there was a full tang going through the handle. And so we addressed all those and we, we launched the first line of CUDA um, in 2014 at ICAST. What most people don't know, um, or maybe by now they'll know, but um, I don't think that we had a single product in production in that booth. They were all prototypes soon to come in. Um, what we didn't expect to happen is to go into a major back order that next day, because we won best of show um, in the fish category, fish mark category, and it just catapulted us. No one in the industry had ever seen anything like CUDA. You know, polycarbonate handles, uh, uh, channeled grips, so they put the blood and the goo and the guts away from your hands, keeping it secure. German 4116 steel, titanium bonding, um, and no one had ever seen any of it. And we really shook up the industry and we woke up the industry because you can now see a bunch of brands out there that look and smell like CUDA and are doing their best to even um, go past this. We have a new line called Aquatuff. Um, that we launched. I think that's going to reset the market again, and I'm excited about it. Um, but for sure, uh, people woke up, they caught up, and, and I'm proud that we woke up the industry, but I'm also agitated uh, at the, the copiers out there. But that happens. They say it's the greatest form of flattery, but, um, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, that's how it all started. And that's where, you know, I came up with the idea of, of that mentality for CUDA and you know, we've grown uh, significantly ever since that that win of ICAST in 2014. That's great. Let's. I want to. I want to get specific though, because I think that my listeners want to hear about some of these specific products. So, if I'm not mistaken, your eight inch titanium bonded snips are a pretty popular product. So, tell me yeah. about the snips. Yeah. So, um, when this goes back to the days I mentioned, Captain Dick Meek, when we are trimming you know, butterfish uh, uh, fins, if you don't do them right, they'll spin. And then therefore tuna won't hit them. If they're spinning, they know they're dead. If you cut off the back fin and trim the side fins, and I'm sorry, I don't know what their names are, um, but if you do that, they don't spin and they actually swim like they're live. Um, and so we used to use office scissors or it just doesn't work on a boat. So you're constantly replacing them. And, and um, I, I was just thinking for so long, why didn't someone build a fishing snip? And why hadn't anybody ever done it? I didn't think it was that big of an innovation. Um, and so when I first started building the prototypes and we would go out there, you know, whether it's inshore fishing for black sea bass or fluke or whatever the case is, or if you go offshore, um, you know, you have a different purpose for it all, but you want that full tang, that strong jaws, <clears throat> much like people use pruners for, you know, lawn and garden needs. And so we started to develop it. And um, I worked a lot with TG out from Wicked Tuna because no one's putting tools through through uh, abuse that they do. Um, and so what transformed, and this happens in many cases where I built a tool for a specific purpose, it'll either have a different purpose when it hits the market or a more widespread purpose. And that's what happened with our SNP. And, and because it's so strong with those blades and we invented um, the, the double serration pattern. Um, and so what we did on that is 
we came out with a number of serrations on the side of a blade, the distance of one serration versus the next and the length of the serrations and even the pitch of the serrations times two on a cutting blade. So what it ended up doing is cutting braid and other products without mushrooming the end. And so therefore going through, you know, eyelets of hooks and other things, it cuts it like butter. And, and to this day, um, that and our braid cutter have that same technology and they're one and two best-selling products and they've never wavered. Those products are incredibly successful and they're our biggest volumes of those two on units. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the serration because I have a note here that says, make sure he talks about the serration. The other yeah, yeah. there is that integrated wire cutter you have on those snips too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a, as a young kid, we didn't have any secondary wire cutters. We used whatever we were cutting to cut wire, wire leaders or whatever the case may be, um, stick baits and, 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 uh, Valley who with a nose wrapping and so forth. So, um, you always damage your blades, right? When you're cutting wire, they're not made for that. They're cutting floral, braid, or mono, whatever the case may be, Dacron. And so I thought it'd be smart to integrate a side cutter. And we did not, we've done that into our pliers, into our snips and other cutting implements to make sure that we heat induct those edges, which means we laser heat them. So they're harder um, than, than the main cutters. And you keep that hard cutting of that solid strand of wire separate from where you're going to cut your fine braid or your mono or or your uh, fluorocarbon. Yeah, that's one of my favorite features of that. And uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned about there not being good snips before. I have memories before going offshore of stopping and running into Kmart to buy five yeah, or six Kmart. pairs of office scissors for for trimming fins so the yeah. baits don't spin on the way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I did the same. So I also know that you're, uh, and I remember when you introduced it, the, uh, Coda, the Cuda D Hooker is also a pretty popular product. Tell me about the D Hooker. Yeah, so um, the problem with a lot of the hookers that were on the market is one, um, they didn't have a really good handle, um, and so they could slip out of your hands. And when the fish is going crazy, he's not has his mouth open waiting for you to perfectly go down and take the hook out. It just doesn't happen like that. So you need a really secure handle, and I think that our handle does that. It allows you to hold it in your palm and and hold it by both your pinky, your ring, your index, and your pointer finger separately. So it gives you that great control. But we also made it of 100% aluminum construction um, and titanium bonding on the inside of the material. So it's not going to rust and fall apart inside the cannula. Um, we also uh, made it very tapered and small to get into tight places and engineered that hook. So when the fish is going around, you can sort of swipe around and catch the, the, uh, the, the sort of crown of the hook and, and make it easier to grab onto it. So a lot of thought process went in. We have both the long one, you know, for freshwater muskies and toothy critters. Um, and then the short uh, for, you know, the inshore. So, for instance, black sea bass in the East Coast, um, they come up with, a, you know, the swollen bellies and you want to you know, deceflate them and get them back in there. And time is everything. They're fragile fish. They're not like a bluefish that could flap on a deck um, and, you know, use them 20 minutes later. They just don't die. Um, black sea bass, which are coveted, they're probably the best eating fish in the ocean, in my opinion. Um, and, and they're fragile. So they're shorts. You got to get them back in. So deceflating them getting that hook out and getting them back in there is crucial. So it's not only a, a great tool just to get any hook out, but it's also a fish conversation, a conservation tool as well. Oh, that's excellent. All right. I want to talk about, I want you to talk about CUDA pliers and I'll tell you up front that I keep the long needle nose pliers and the CUDA titanium pliers at the ready on my boat, but tell the Rodcast listening crew about these pliers. Cause these are fantastic pliers in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we make a whole host of pliers and over the years since 2014, we've introduced new ones. Um, and uh, we're going to be introducing 
um, I hope, which is the new wave of, of pliers at the 220, two, uh, 2023 ICAST. So we have something special uh, uh, waiting for that. Um, but yeah, the, the pliers, we have a host of carbon steel, um, stainless steel, titanium alloy, and aluminum alloy pliers. And depending on your price point, we have something for everyone. Um, the pliers you're referring to, the stainless steel needle nose pliers, um, we were one of the first to try and come out with a stainless steel versus carbon steel. Obviously, stainless holds up in the saltwater environments um, better than carbon. Um, our carbon pliers, I think, are some of the best because we not only chrome and nickel them, but we also put a layer of titanium to help with that process and corrosion resistance. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a host of pliers that, like you said, have separate wire cutters. Um, we make sure the jaws line up perfectly with a crisscross pattern to hold line both vertically or horizontally in the jaw so it doesn't slip out, um, giving them control. And then again, looking at the ergonomics. Uh, it's super important when your hands are slimy or bloody that they don't come flying out of your hands and they do their, their purpose. And last but not least, one of the best patents that, that we launched with CUDA, and there's over 19 issued or pending now, just from that line, is our internal spring mechanism. So a lot of fishing tools out there have external springs that can rust or corrode or even come flying out because they're only held by two little uh, posts on the inside. We put everything in a sealed cam inside so it's away from the corrosion, won't come flying out, it won't break. Um, and that way it doesn't get involved in gunked up in blood and guts and scales on the outside of your plier. So we've used that same mentality in a bunch of our products, including the SNPs we talked of or spoke of earlier. So um, using our technology, once we invent it and bringing it across different uh, implements um, is really important and, and intelligent for us and our consumers. Yeah, one, I'm glad you said that. You brought up a couple of things that I wasn't going to talk about, but now that you brought it up, I kind of want to mention um, I really like on the uh, titanium pliers that the wire cutter on the outside, you can actually replace those two blades on the wire cutter. I never have. I haven't had any need to, but I like that you can. But you mentioned your patents, and I got to tell you, when I was getting ready to talk with you, I went through the patent office to everything tied to you and CUDA. And that's just incredible. That's a lot of patents you guys have pulled off in the in the past several years. Yeah, yeah, I, I... Well, I'm not just responsible for CUDA. We also have Camillus, um, which is a high-end, um, uh, uh, you know, tactical survival camping uh, uh, knife line um, and tool line. And then we also have DMT, which is the very best sharpeners on a plant, all made here in the USA, Marlboro, Massachusetts. So um, in my tenure here, 17 plus years at Acme, I have either either issued or pending close to 60 patents. Yeah, that's just um, And so it's something that, when you walk into Acme United, you're either an innovator or, you know, you're a facilitator. Um, and most people are innovators. And, and that's what from our sales guys to our brand and marketing managers, we're all trying to come up with a new widget. Um, and uh, I'm famous for my stick drawings and sketch them all out. And I could show you one and embarrass myself. But um, and, and our engineers take my stick drawings and create magic. Um, so ideas come from my head and then they make it a reality. You know, and and there've been some great news tools coming out of that innovation too. And now obviously we're not going to be able to cover the full catalog of CUDA tools, right? but I do want to point out that you have introduced some, like you say, some pretty, pretty innovative tools. Tell me about the, the CUDA bait D hooker, which is designed for easily taking bait off of sabiki rigs. And it's just flat out an innovative design. Well, that's not something we designed. That's actually the only tool out of 131 tools in the CUDA line. That's the only tool that we, <laughs> absolutely didn't design 
Um, the truth is, is there's two kids from Florida, super smart kids that created this thing out of wood and started using it. And they posted it on social and somehow, some way I saw it and I couldn't find them. I, there was a dead end everywhere I went. Um, and uh, so we had an intern at the time um, who was also a young, super bright kid that knew how to use the internet better than I did at the time. And he went down of a two week period, found these kids, worked it, and we licensed that product from them. Obviously, once we, we got it from them, we enhanced the design and made it workable because theirs was, you know, it was very simplistic, but not duplicated. We couldn't duplicate it. Um, and so we did that. And um, uh, so the idea and the concept came from them, not, not me or Cuda. That's a great story though. I mean, that's yeah. fantastic. Yep. All right. Tools aside, I want to talk knives because in a lot of ways, and at least from my perspective, Cuda knives are also a big hallmark of the Cuda portfolio. And yeah. Before I get you talking about the Cuda knives, I do want to let the listening crew that if you want to see my reviews of the Cuda brand professional series knives <laughs> and the Cuda brand titanium bonded knives, you can find those on the Inventifishing YouTube channel. But I want to get Rick to tell us about those blades. So tell us what are some of the knives that we need to be looking at and some of the, the, the uh, philosophies you've got behind blades. Um, well, we first launched the knives, as I said earlier, with uh, 4116 German steel. Um, we used polycarbonate handles so you could see through the handles and see the tang. Our grips were engineered to whisk away water and blood and other things to keep your hands dry. And then, of course, our titanium bonding. Um, and throughout the years, we've launched, uh, I think, innovative uh, knives, including our professional line, which uh, uses American ATS uh, steel, um, carpenter steel. Um, we had a ceramic-infused um, nonstick barrier and PVD process on those blades. And then we ended up using also Micarta, 72 layers of Micarta on the handles and Kydex sheets. They were, and still are, in my opinion, the best knives to ever hit the planet, um, but also very pricey. Um, and then this year we launched what's called Aquatuff, which I'm most proud of. I think of, of outside our snips and our braid cutters, probably I'm most proud of this line um, because once again, we looked at all the problems that fishermen have um, corrosion, um, you know, comfortability and ergonomics on your handle, um, and more importantly, just the ultimate corrosion resistance. Um, and taking corrosion resistance out on its own, you know, we used to try and go after 500 hours of corrosion resistance in a salt fog spray at 5% salinity, you know, over 24 hours and see what the damage is to the blades. And believe it or not, in most cases, uh, a lot of brands out there can't even finish that test. So we were the first to break the 500 barrier, uh, our barrier with the original CUDA line. Um, and this new Aquata line does over 2000 hours. So we're really proud of it. Um, but more importantly, we're the first ever to adhere carbide edge to a knife. Um, and so we have our German steel and then we weld on carbide steel, blend it, um, polish it. And then um, it is incredibly hard. A Rockwell of our knives are in 54 to 56 Rockwell. These now, the edge goes up into the 70s. Um, and then last but not least, we put a silicone handle, which is very expensive, and then topped it off with our brand new PVD called Zirconium, which is industrial diamond coating or bonding. And that gives us that 2000 hours. So if you review it, your knife is going to last. I mean, we've had some captains use our knife and haven't had to sharpen it in a season. It's dramatic in what it's done. No rust because of Zirconium. Um, and again, that handle with a zirconium gives you, whether you're gloved or naked hand, 
the best grip that we've ever done. Um, and we built them for a price point. Um, it's a little more than our existing line, but much, much less than our professional where people can easily afford this and get a knife that is really what fishermen have been dying for. So I'm really proud of it. Really proud of it. That's excellent. I cannot wait to try those. I, you know, it's funny you're talking about that. I was talking to your colleague, Jerry, at ICAST, yeah. and I confess that I actually have three or four of the professional series knives that I just keep in the kitchen because anytime <laughs> I've got to do any kind of butchering or cleaning of any kind of meat or fish, those are my go-to knives now. I mean, yeah. those are just fantastic knives. Yeah. It's funny that you say that. We At, at, no, at Thanksgiving time, oh, our CUDA site and our social gets filled up with people showing pictures of turkey carving. And we, <laughs> we just sit there and go, wait, what just happened? We're a fishing company. But yes, that happens. And, and they are they are great knives and they're beautiful enough that you can use in your house for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they are my go-to kitchen blades. You know, as we're talking about all these great Cuda brand tools, I also can't help but think about the fantastic lineup of pro staffers you've built up over the years too. I yeah. mean, Bob Izumi, Mariko Izumi, Dave Maracino, Jimmy Johnson, you mentioned TJ Ott earlier, Mike Anderson, and so many more. Oh, and you've got the three stooges, right? Jimbo Keith, Will Burback, and Tony <laughs> Hartley. Really, really, Rick, Tony, what is this? Yeah. You like your token charity case pro staffer here? With, with I love Will. I love all our pros, but yeah. Will, Will's my guy, both in personality, and he's a fish whisperer. You want redfish, yep. you want tarpon, he's your guy. Oh, Will is fantastic. Yeah, uh, he is. I, I like Jimbo. We, uh, Jimbo's right up here with me, and you know, all these guys are great, and of course, Tony's one of my best friends. So, but I mean, that's an incredible, you have an incredible pro staff. What's it like working with this range and this caliber of anglers? I mean, you get somebody like TJ Ott, right. And some of the other, um, you know, big commercial celebrities, you know, through Tony and all that. But um, yeah. So, I mean, what's it like working with them? Uh, well, they're all different personalities. Um, you know, TJ uh, is, such an accomplished fisherman across all different species. Um, but now obviously he's known for giants and they, and he and all the wicked tuna captains got that down and they just continued to hone and perfect their craft. Um, when I deal with a Will Burback, um, it's, it's a different situation because he's out there grinding every day with charters and in his tools take a beating like you can't imagine. And so there's different personalities, different uses, different fish that they're angling, um, whether you're commercial or party boat, um uh or just you know under a regular six pack there's there's always different usage for our tools and the abuse that they get so they're all different they all give us great comments which is why we have them it's not just to grab their notoriety from whether it's coach jimmy johnson or tj or marciano all these guys um either send us ideas on what they need um or they say you know listen this this knife didn't perform like i i i expected and so forth and so they not only help push our tools, they're really, really good on helping vet our new tools, which have about a three-year incubation time before from creation to when they hit the market. Um, but they're just great all the way around. Um, and, and I think we have the greatest pro staff on the planet because they actually care about our brand. Um, and and it, that means the world to me. Yeah, that I mean that is an impressive group, and you know, then you add the you know parts of your team, Ray and Mike and Jerry. I mean, it's just a great group to be. You know, Rick, this has been fantastic, and I got one final wrap up question for you before we before I undo the cuffs and let you out of the studio and let you back <laughs> to your life. Um, I do have to ask our traditional wrap up question. So, with all of your years on the water and all the fish you caught in lots of places well beyond your North Atlantic home waters. 
what's your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there waiting for Rick Constantine? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I would tell you that it was a rooster fish and I knocked that off. Um, so I, I got, I got a beautiful rooster, which is on my wall from Cabo. Um, so I'm excited about that. I would say, um, a halibut, uh, in Alaska and a black Marlin. Those are the only two. And I'm not a huge Marlin fisherman. And I know people live and die by Marlin. Um, I come from commercial fishing. We call them devils and we cut the line. And I know people won't believe that, but it's true because there's no market for Marlin, um, for the most part. And so it, it's a disruption to what we're doing. Um, whether it's sword fishing, you know, giants or, or albacore yellowfin. So it always got in the way. But for me, it's a black marlin just because of how big they can get. And it's the true passion, you against the fish. And, of course, a halibut. Um, I haven't been to Alaska yet, and it's absolutely um, – I want to do it soon, as soon as I can get out there and, and catch a halibut because I think both of those um, would be huge for me. And there's a long list, obviously. Um, but those would be my two focal points, black marlin and halibut. Uh, those are great fish. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to catch a lot of halibut from boat and kayak. And, you know, so, yeah, great, wow. great stuff. Rick, it's always great to talk with you. And I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to chat with me today on the Rodcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been a blast. And, and thanks for um, uh, doing all the research and such insightful uh, uh, questions. I, I do this quite often and this has been great. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Rick. Well, 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 or well, well, top shelf. I think it's time for a bourbon break or today, I suppose we'll be taking a whiskey intermission because we're going to go pre-bourbon today and take a look at white whiskey, specifically Death's Door white whiskey. Now, for those of you who don't know, a white whiskey is a whiskey that is bottled straight off the still. It isn't aged in barrels, so it comes out clear without any of the flavor that aging in charged barrels infuse into that whiskey. It also comes out clear without any of the color that is infused from the charred oak barrels of a bourbon. White whiskeys are probably best known as moonshine, and they usually have the reputation of having the taste of cleaning fluid and the potential for producing epic hangovers. But there are a few white dogs out there that are worth exploring. Now, of course, you know I have to comment on the origin of Death Store's name, particularly because it's not meant to be a comment on the effect of the alcohol in the bottle. It's not like when a hot sauce company names their sauce something like Pucker Butt's Voodoo Prince Death Mamba or Kiss Your Ass Goodbye Hot Sauce, trying to create that sense of fear. Rather, Death's Door evokes a legend that during the 18th century, a group of about 300 Potawatomi and Winnebago tribe members were trying to cross the waters between Washington Island, Wisconsin, and the mainland. Washington Island is located about seven miles from what is now known as Door County, Wisconsin. An unanticipated storm came up on the group, and tragically, they were all drowned in the crossing. Years later, the waters that entombed the Native Americans were nicknamed Death's Door. And you guessed it, Death's Door is distilled on Washington Island, hence the name. Now, Death's Door White Whiskey has the honor of being able to claim to be the founding father of the white whiskey movement in the U.S. And even though they claim to be the originator, I have to say at the outset... There are other distillers that get, get it more right than Death's Door does. So according to Death's Door's press, 
Death Store's white whiskey was a pioneer in the whiskey category, and it has an 80 to 20 mash bill of hard red winter wheat to malted barley. The unique character of this spirit starts back in the process of fermenting the grains, utilizing a champagne yeast rather than a traditional whiskey yeast. The spirit is then double distilled up to 160 proof, rested in stainless steel, proofed down to 80%, and finished in uncharred Minnesota oak barrels to help bring the white whiskey together and to meld this unique spirit's flavors. Okay, so that's directly from Death Store's press. Now, there's no real reason to talk about the eye of Death Store because white whiskeys are clear. They've not picked up the coloration of a charred oak or anything else that they've been aged in. The Death's door is not only clear and shiny, but it has a very thin look to it. It doesn't hang on the glass very well. But what is worth talking about is that mash bill of 80% red winter wheat and 20% malted barley. A lot of the white whiskeys that are available carry bourbon-style mash bills with a heavy corn blend, giving them a sweet, buttery, popcorn-like flavor. But the white whiskey, Death Store's white whiskey, lack of corn in total, and this wheat-heavy blend offers up a nose that is not what one usually expects from a white whiskey. The nose is astringent, almost like a hospital disinfectant. And that antiseptic scent carries into the palate, which opens in a flavor that seems to me to be a cross between acetone and ash, but that's delivered in kind of a weird creamier medium. That is, on the palate, the death store feels smooth, but the flavor works in opposition to that sensation. Even the finish is fast, and the dominant flavors seem to me to be charred, not, not the fish, but like licking a burnt pine log, maybe? Now, let me explain. I like white whiskeys. In fact, I like some of them a lot. And a while back, I talked about Buffalo Trace's White Dog on one of these bourbon breaks, and I really like that white whiskey. It adds a fantastic twist to making an old-fashioned or a whiskey sour. I also used to run a couple of my own stills, and I learned what really bad moonshine tastes like. To me, Death Store falls into that category of unpleasant moonshines. In fact, I've had a bottle of it on my shelf for a long time now, and I never reach for it. I poured a bit to try again for this bourbon break, but my guess is that that bottle will be there on the shelf with the same amount of whiskey in it as it now has when my boys are divvying up their inheritance. So, those are my thoughts about Death Store's Death Store White Whiskey, which might be summed up with a one-word review. Unpleasant. Of course, before we get back to the Rodcast, and as a final note, and as my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a shout-out to a bar that I only ever got the chance to go to a few times as a teenager, but having had the chance to do so will always be etched in my mind as a great experience. I'm talking about CBGB's in New York and the remarkable impact that place had on punk and rock music and the importance of it to young punks like me way back when. Hey, don't forget that friends bring happiness to your life, but good friends, they bring bourbon. As always, if you got a comment about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And now that's that. 
let's get back to the cast. Okay, okay, okay. Let's get to the math portion of the Rodcast, and let's count down the professor's top 10 for this week. And this week, I want to take a look at my top 10 eel imitators. Now, like it happened for many of us, there are several reasons that I started fishing artificial eels for several different species, ranging from stripers to cobia to tarpon, and even some reef fish like snapper. Is that Part of the reason is that fishing with live eels has to be one of the biggest pains in the ass of things we do as anglers. Live eels are difficult to keep alive, they're a pain in the ass to try to rig, and in most parts of the country you can't find them in bait stores or very easily catch them or enough of them to make a viable bait. Now, I had my first experiences working with live eels as a teenager fishing for stripers, or what we'd call rockfish, around the lower Chesapeake Bay, and I absolutely hated using them. And when I started fishing cobia and tarpon farther south, you just couldn't find eels in any bait shop. I also learned that eels are great baits for blackfin tuna, and I've used them for that application. However, I've also heard that eels are great baits for white marlin, but I will confess I've not fished for white marlin using artificial eels. So with that in mind, I became more attentive to the artificial eels that are out there and how effective they can be. So let me count down the 10 best eel imitators I've fished with over the several ever the years. In several scenarios for stripers, cobia, tarpon, blackfin, and a few scattered other random applications. So unlike other top 10s that I talk about lures for specific species, I'm going to go species neutral here and just talk about eels in general. Not which eel imitators are best for stripers versus those best for cobia. Just eels all the way down. All right, kicking off the countdown, I want to start with CNH's sand eel. This is an eel that often gets overlooked, but it's a great eel imitator. It's a six and three quarter inch eel, but unlike a lot of the other eels I'll talk about today, the CNH sand eel is molded with a paddle tail, which gives it a great swimming action. They only come in two colors, pink and black, and coincidentally, most tarpon anglers I know who use artificial eels spend a lot of time arguing as to whether pink or black is the best for tarpon, so it works out well that CNH CNHs only provide pink and black. These rig really well with many different kinds of jig heads, and they can even be rigged to troll, which is great for when you want eels for blackfin. The other real benefit of the CNH sand eels is the price. They come in packs of three for less than six bucks. Coming in at number nine, let's go with Tsunami's holographic sand eel. Unlike the CNH sand eel, the Tsunami holographic sand eel comes pre-rigged with a black nickel hook which has a unique bend in it to prevent the eel from sliding off the hook. The pre-rigging does not include any weight, just the hook. They're available in 6 and 8 inch models and available in 4 lifelike color options. The mold of these eels is quite realistic. Because they come pre-rigged but not pre-weighted, these eels can be used easily on an umbrella rig, creating a schooling pattern, which works well for trolling eels. I also like the price of the Tsunami holographic sand eels, too, since they come in packs of two pre-rigged eels for five bucks. At number eight, I'm going to go with the Felmley eel. Now, Felmley has been making artificial eels since 1954, when the company first started producing lures. They make eels in varieties of sizes, ranging in length from 3 inches up to 16 inches. They also sell them unrigged, rigged with just a hook, rigged with a squid head, rigged on bucktails, and rigged on a jig head. Now, the rigged eel bucktail is an ideal version for striper fishing. I like the rigged eel with the squid head, 
because this rigging includes a weighted planer head that really gets the eel down and the flat weight adds a lot of action to the lure's swim. Likewise, the squid head rigged eels have a through wire rigging that places a single hook at the back of the eel and another at the front of the eel, adding to the, li to the likelihood of a hookup even if the strike is a short bite. All of the Felmley eels come in five color variations and prices range depending on the size eel you want and the rigging. They range from about five bucks up to $18. Okay, at number seven, let me point to Savage Gear's Sand Eel V2. Now, Savage makes several eels, and their darting Sand Eel has been a great eel imitator. But recently, Savage updated the Sand Eel to the V2, and this is just a great eel imitator. Like all of Savage Gear's lures, there's a real focus on this with the Sand Eel V2 on its realistic look. Now, the paddle tail on this eel also gives it great kicking action on both the retrieve and the drop. They come rigged with these great realistic bullet head jigs that contribute to a darting action on the drop and the retrieve. They're pre-rigged with forged carbon steel hooks with a 10 finish. They also have a neat little removable glass rattle in the body, but I'm going to admit I leave them in because when I take the rattles out, I tend to lose them. They come in four different sizes, ranging from a four and three quarter inch to a seven inch. It is just a great eel. At number six, let's go with Almost Alive Lures, Almost Alive Eels. Now, Almost Alive claims that their eels are the most realistic representation of an eel available anywhere, and that really is the key characteristic of the Almost Alive Eel. It really looks real. They are available in three size options, 8, 11, and 16 inches. They only come in one natural eel color pattern, but that's okay because they really look like eels. The colors on these eels are hand-painted onto each one, and the rubber they're made out of is very durable. They're also reasonably priced, ranging from $1.50 up to $13. Okay, we're halfway there, whoa-ho, fishing on a prayer. And at number five, I'm going to go with Berkeley's Powerbait Eel. Now, to be clear... Berkeley makes a power bait eel and a gulp eel, and in the number five slot, I've got the power bait eel. But spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the gulp eel will be coming up soon. So maybe for clarity's sake, I should take a moment and explain the difference between Berkeley's power baits and Berkeley's gulp alive baits. Simply put, power baits are made from a PVC-based material that is then blended with an oil-based resin to make them soft. Gulp and Gulp Alive, on the other hand, are made from water-based resins, which retain and distribute scent more efficiently than does the Powerbait PVC and oil, because the oil-based resin traps the scent in the lure, but the water-based resin releases the scent. So when a fish bites a Powerbait lure, the pressure of the fish's mouth squeezes out more scent from the oil-based material, encouraging them to hang on to the bait. So a well-chewed power bait will have had a lot of its scent squeezed out. But a gulp or gulp alive lets scent out as soon as it hits the water because there's no oil for the scent to cling to. A gulp or a gulp alive will release scent all day, and then you can recharge the scent by simply putting the lure back in the gulp scent liquid. So that's the difference between the power bait and the gulp or gulp alive. So yes, then at number five, I've got the Berkeley Powerbait Eel. This is a scented eel that comes pre-rigged with two single nickel hooks 
that are rigged at the front and midsection of the eel. The tail is a wide, flat tail that creates a lot of back-and-forth swimming action. They're available in 8- or 12-inch sizes. They're rigged only with only the hooks, so you can determine whether you want to add weight or not, and they list for about $9 a piece. All right. At the number four position, I want to give credit to Fish Lab's Mad Eel. This is a really universally applicable lure here. It was designed not just as an eel imitator, but as an effective search bait. In fact, while most of the applications I've discussed in this list have been rather focused on Atlantic and Gulf species, Fish Lab also points to the effectiveness of the Mad Eel in Pacific kelp bed environments for locating fish. The Mad Eel is available in five sizes, five, six, seven, seven and a half, and eight inch models. They swim with a heavy side-to-side rolling action. This big wobbling movement is effective, particularly in low light conditions, because with that much movement, the lure is displacing a lot of water, causing bigger disturbances and thus making more of a visual impact than a sensory impact. It's also got a specially designed jig hook. Each pack of the Mad Eels comes with two eel bodies and one jig head. They're available in about nine color options, and each pack costs between 7 and 15 bucks, depending on the size. Okay, at number three, as promised, I've got Berkeley's Saltwater Gulp Eel. Like I said a moment ago, the big deal about the gulp lures, including the gulp eel, is the scent dispersal. These eels come unrigged, so you can rig just about any way you want. They're molded with a great body design, but frankly, there's not a lot of detail in that design. The focus is on scent attraction over visual attraction, and that's evident with the Berkeley Gulp models. Nonetheless, the Berkeley Gulp saltwater eels do swim well when rigged with a jig head or with other rigging options. These are 10-inch eels, and they only come in three color options, and they come in packs of three for about $13. Okie dokie. That brings us to my runner-up for this week's top 10, and that honor goes to Savage Gear's Real Eel, both the pre-rigged and the jig versions. I really like this eel a lot. It's got a fantastic uh, real-life look to it, primarily because the design, as most Savage Gear lures are, is based on 3D scans of actual eels. I also love this eel uh, because it's pre-rigged. It comes rigged with a single hook that exits the dorsal position of the eel's body, and a treble hook that can be removed from the belly of the lure. These are slow-sinking eels, and I find them great as casting or trolling lures. And I've even added a trolling weight to use them for trolling wrecks and reefs. They come in three sizes, 8, 12, and 16-inch versions, and are available in six color options. They list anywhere from $10 up to $15, depending on where you buy them. But really, these are just absolute fantastic eel imitators. Okay, so that brings us to my favorite eel imitator, and my guess is that if you've been paying attention, you know which eel imitator is most evidently missing from my list thus far, and therefore most likely to be my number one eel eel imitator in this week's list. But before we give up the obvious, let's get a quick recap for those of us with withering memories. At number 10, CNH's Sand Eel. At 9, Tsunami's Holographic Sand Eel. At 8, the Felmley Eel. At 7, Savage Gear's Sand Eel V2. At six, Almost Alive, Lures Almost Alive Eels. At five, Berkeley Powerbait Eel. At four, Fish Labs Mad Eel. At three, Berkeley Saltwater Gulp Eel. At two, Savage Gears Real Eel, the pre-rigged and the jig. And that brings us to number one. And for those of you who guessed it, you're right. My favorite eel imitator is the hoagie eel. And because hoagies are such great eel imitators, I'm going to narrow it down today and focus on hoagie's slappy jigging series. 
Now, we have to give credit to Hoagie Ambassador Eric Slappy Harrison for his contribution to this great eel lure. Slappy's a legendary striper angler, and his go-to eel imitator for stripers is the Hoagie Slappy Jiggin series of eels. These are durable eel lures with super tough yet soft, flexible bodies. The mold gives the lure a scaly texture, and the long tapering tail kicks and glides with realistic eel motion. I like, too, that they cut the head of this lure flat to make it easier to rig with just about any jig head. I should note, too, that because of this flathead design, Hoagie's own classic barbarian jig head pairs really well with the slappy. The Hoagie Slappy is 13-inch lure. It's sold in packs of six for about 25 bucks, so figure each lure is just over four bucks. And all in all, this is the best eel lure I have fished with. So that wraps up this week's top 10. But before we actually wrap it up, I should point out, too, that when using eels for tarpon, cobia, or even blackfin, or I guess white marlin, though I haven't tried, as to colder water fish like stripers, the eels are also really enticing to barracuda. And so you may go, you may actually lose a few hoagies or other eel lures to toothier, toothier critters, but in the long run, that's okay given the effectiveness of these eels on target species. Hey, I also learned recently that these same eels are actually also great for walleye, so that's worth knowing too. Hey, since we're talking about eels, do you know the difference between an eel and a lawyer? One's an ugly, slimy, scaly, cold-blooded, parasitic, scum-sucking bottom feeder, and the other's a fish that's shaped like a snake. hi -oh. All right, that's it for this week's Top 10. Let's get back to the cast. Oh, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Rodcast. I want to thank Rick Constantine for that great conversation. And because Rick was on the show today, I do want to say that I really do rely on my CUDA knives and tools. And without any kind of sponsorship commitment, I can honestly say that CUDA tools are a fantastic product. Or they are fantastic products and well worth having handy on the boat and in the kitchen. Hey, I do hope you found my thoughts about Death's Door White Whiskey to inspire you to try a little white whiskey other than Death's Door. And I hope that my countdown of my top 10 eel imitators wasn't too slithery for you. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The reef is holding fish. I say again, the reef is holding fish. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and all of the members of my listening crew will spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on Inventive Fishing's YouTube channel. I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!